Well, we are now in, if you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, we are now in our 16th week of working our way through the 16 chapters of Mark. And we now realize, and we realize because I've reminded us, I think, each and every week, our primary goal here is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. Our goal is to get the gospel of Mark through us. That's two completely, entirely different things. Our goal is to take the things that we talk about, the things that you read about during the week, to take those things and trust God that we can apply those things to our life and then share those with the people around us. So here's our plan. This morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 16. And then next week, next week we're going to do a review of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start with Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and work our way all through Mark chapter 16 in one week. Now, how are we going to do that when it took us 16 weeks to get here? Well, we're going to stay till 10 o'clock at night. Okay? Otherwise, you're going to have to get here and buckle up and hang on to the chair because we're going to go lickety-split, and that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to go through all 16 chapters in 30 minutes. And I don't know if that's even possible. No, I don't think it is. But we're going to try it. And then on the next Sunday, November 3rd, we're going to start our new sermon series. We're going to begin working our way through the book of Jonah. And so I would just encourage you between now and two weeks from now, begin reading in Jonah. Last week we talked about how Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, it was the beginning well, last week we were actually on Mark 15, but we backed up a few chapters just to get a running head start on Mark 15. But last week, we reminded ourselves that when Jesus entered Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, it was the beginning of his last week on earth. And so we looked at what happened during that last week on Sunday, which we now call Palm Sunday. We looked at what happened on Sunday. We looked at what happened on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We looked at all of that last Sunday morning. I want us to begin this morning. We're just going to go back just to one verse. I want us to go back to Mark 15, verse 1, just so we can get a handle on where we are this morning. Chapter 15, verse 1 says this, and as soon as it was morning, now let's just stop. Where are we? Where are we in this week? leading into Mark 16. Well, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. So I would encourage you to take a pen or a pencil or a marker and either underline or circle or draw a box around that morning or write it in the margin next to the column in your Bible and write down Friday morning. We need to understand where we are in this last week of Jesus' life. As soon as it was Friday morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. We are on Friday morning, the day when Jesus is going to be crucified. In your Bibles, Mark 15, skip down to verse 42. Let me read a handful of verses. Mark 15, 42, and when it was evening, now let's just stop, now it's Friday evening. The crucifixion has already taken place by the time we get to verse 42. When evening, Friday evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, when is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is Saturday. And when it was evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the consul, who also was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. In summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now let's go to Mark 16 verse 1. And I'm going to read the first eight verses. When the Sabbath, remember when the Sabbath is now? The Sabbath is Saturday. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when is, what day is the first day of the week? Sunday. So now it's very early on Sunday morning. We would call this Easter Sunday. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Verse 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now let's just pray just for a minute, and then we're going to stop and remind ourselves of what it is that we've just read. So, dear Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would open these words up to us, that we would leave here as different people, not because of anything that I say, but because of what you are saying to us through the Holy Spirit. We ask that these words would just become alive, that we'd be reassured of what happened on that day so many years ago, reassured and grateful and thankful and blessed for giving us the faith to believe those things. But we ask, Lord, that it wouldn't just become a dead sea in our heart, but that we would be excited and want to share this truth with the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark 16, 1 begins, when the Sabbath was passed. The Sabbath was the last day of the week for the Jews. The next day, Sunday, was always considered the first day of the week. This is how we know that Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday morning. Now, it's amazing, it's incredible, it's interesting, whatever word you want to use here, that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rose from the grave, he arose on a Sunday morning. So that God could look into the future and would understand that one of our holidays, the greatest holiday of the year, is Easter Sunday. It wasn't a mistake that he arose on a Sunday, but it was the sovereignty of God. Jesus didn't have to arise 
on a Sunday. I mean, but just think about that. What if he would have resurrected on a Tuesday? We would call that Easter Tuesday. It seems we're so used to celebrating Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday that we think, well, naturally, you know, but that's the sovereignty of God. In order for Jesus to rise on a Sunday, and we know that he was in the grave for three days, it says that in the Gospels, and they count time a little different than I would count it in, what is this year, 2019. You know, for me, if somebody is put in a grave on, on Friday afternoon, and they are out of the grave on Sunday afternoon, we know it was Sunday morning, to me that seems like two days. But Jewish tradition was they counted the first day as the day when you went into the grave, and then the second day in this situation was the Sabbath, and then the third day, even though he arose early in the morning, that still counted as three days. Well, you might remember just a little snippet from what we talked about, how does God orchestrate and organize all the details so that Jesus will rise from the dead on a Sunday morning? Well, that means that Jesus has to be crucified on a Friday if he's going to be in there three days. And last week we talked about how Pilate, the governor of Judea, ruled that part of the world from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. We know that Jesus was crucified on Passover. If Jesus is going to be crucified on a Friday, there has to be a Passover that takes place on a Friday. And there's only two years in the 11 years when Pilate is governor, there's only two years when Passover occurs on a Friday, 30 A.D. and 33 A.D. So we know that Jesus was crucified in either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. If he has to be crucified on Friday and he's going to spend three days in the grave and rise on a Sunday so that you and I in 2019 can celebrate Easter Sunday instead of Easter Tuesday or whatever the day would have been, God orchestrated all those things. Now, Sabbath is the last day of the week for the Jews. The next day, Sunday is the first day. And that's how we know that Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. There's two men, two women in this passage are bringing spices to anoint Jesus. It was not to embalm him. The spices they were bringing was used to provide a sort of fragrance to cover the smell of a decaying body. Normally, the dead would be anointed with these spices on the day when the body is placed in the tomb. But in this situation... According to the schedule that Mark gives us, according to Mark 15, beginning in verse 34, Jesus physically took his last breath at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday afternoon. And the next day being the Sabbath, with all those restrictions about what people can do and cannot do on the Sabbath, it may have required postponing the anointing of Jesus until after the Sabbath, which meant the first chance they had to go and anoint the body would have been on Sunday morning. And that's why the women are going early in the morning to the tomb to do their anointing. Now, Mark is the only one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the only one that gives us this conversation between the two women as they're traveling along on the way to the tomb. They're asking, who's going to roll away the stone? You know, it's interesting. If we would divide up into little groups of three or four people, and we're not going to do this, just relax. 
But if we would divide up into little groups and sort of retell the, the Easter story to each other with all these little details, I would guess most of us would remember that the women, on their way to the tomb, asked the question, who's going to roll away the stone? We think that that's part, well, that is part of the story. But Mark's the only one that tells us that. Matthew, Luke, and John don't say anything about these women wondering who's going to roll away the stone. Um, turn with me if you want, or just sit and follow along. John chapter 20, verse 19 gives us a clue. John 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It could very well be the women were concerned about who's going to roll away the stone because all the men, all the disciples are now at this moment in hiding for fear of the Jews. Now let's go back to Mark 16. When the women arrive at the tomb, the stone is already rolled away. You know, somebody said most of the things we worry about in life Never happened anyway. Well, that's not the situation here. Mark 16, 5 says that there was three women who saw this young man. When Matthew tells the story in Matthew 28, he says, he didn't say anything about a man. He says it was an angel. And when Luke tells the story in Luke 24, he says there's two men there in dazzling apparel. And when John tells us the story, he says the women saw Two angels. So I don't know if it was one angel or two angels, and I don't know if it was, I think it was an angel. It wasn't just a guy standing there in a white coat. And in the blink of an eye, though, everything changes. The women had gone to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, and now they discover that he's no longer dead. He has risen from the dead. Turn with me to Mark 16, and let's just read a couple of these verses again. I want us to begin in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified? He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for... Uh, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Here they go to the tomb looking for Jesus, and he's nowhere to be found. The reason he's nowhere to be found is because the tomb is for dead people. Jesus is alive. That's why he's not there. The empty tomb is one of several facts associated with the resurrection. The empty tomb testifies that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now this stone, think about this stone. The stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. The stone was rolled away so that we could look inside the tomb and realize that Jesus isn't there. We don't need to roll the stone away so that Jesus can out. Don't worry about Jesus. If God wants him out of the tomb, he doesn't need to roll away the stone. Jesus is alive and he's just as much alive today. He's just as much alive today as he was on that day in Jerusalem. Now, if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, we're in 
Mark chapter 16, and we just finished talking about verse 8. Now, immediately following verse 8 in your Bibles, there's an editorial comment, and I will say this, there's an editorial comment in all reputable Bibles which says something like this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Now, depending on your Bible, sometimes that comment is right there in the column where the verses are. Sometimes it's before verse 8. Sometimes it's, or it's before verse 9. Sometimes a similar comment like that will appear in your Bible after verse 20. Sometimes there's a little footnote up there by verse 9, and then it's a description either in the center column or at the bottom of the page. The comment may be, Exactly like what I just read, which says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. All reputable Bibles have a comment either exactly like that or similar to it. But let me say this again. All reputable Bibles. All reputable Bibles have a comment like that. So this past week, I went back and checked. I wanted to make sure that all of my Bibles were in that category of reputable. So I went back and I checked my ESV Bible. Oh, yeah. It's got that right in there. So I'm going to keep that Bible. I went back and checked my NIV Bible. Oh, yeah. It's in there. I'm going to keep that one, too. I went back and checked my... uh, Well, I've got more than one favorite, let me just say that, okay? So I went back and I checked my Holman Bible, Holman Christian Standard Bible. Yep, it's in there too. I'm going to keep that. Then I have another one, a New Testament, that I first ran across this New Testament. It's got to be 15, 20 years ago. It's called God's Word translation. They eventually came out with the whole Bible, but all that I have is the New Testament. And I take it with me sometimes when I'm traveling, just put it in my backpack. I like it because it's so refreshing, because I get so used to reading the same translation over and over and over. So, so I checked my good God's Word translation. Ha, hallelujah. It's in there too, so I'm going to keep that one. So when I say there's an editorial comment in all reputable Bibles, and I want you to look at your Bible and make sure it has that comment in there, I literally mean all reputable Bibles. If your Bible does not have a comment like that in it, I'd be the first to question the authenticity of your Bible as a as a reputable translation, and, and not as a Baptist, but as a conservative evangelical Christian, if your Bible doesn't have a comment in there like that, I would be the first person on the planet to tell you stop using that Bible and go buy a reputable translation that has a comment like that in there before verse 9. I'm, I'm telling you, I do not know of a single Bible scholar anywhere, anywhere, that accepts verses 9 through 20 as actually being part of Mark's gospel. Let's understand this. Mark's gospel stops with verse 8. 
That's why this editorial comment is in there, which causes me to ask a question. Why are these verses even in there? Except for this little footnote. 99.9% of all the evangelical scholars out there in the world, 99.9, that's not enough. 99.99999, because I'm sure there's one out there someplace. They all agree that verses 9 through 20 are not the original ending to the Gospel of Mark, but they were added later on, years later, by somebody else. Now let me just take a step back, because I can't get inside everybody's head. I, I, I don't know what you know, and I don't know what you don't know, and I have a difficult time trying to figure out what it is that I know and what I don't know. But you may or may not know, but there are zero. Say that number. When it, how many? Say it. Zero. There are zero copies. How many? There are zero copies of the original New Testament anywhere in the world. How many? Zero. It isn't like there's a library someplace, let's say, in, in Italy or I don't even know, Jerusalem, that has a copy of the original New Testament. No, there isn't. There's not an original copy of the New Testament anywhere in the world. There's not a single original copy of any part of the New Testament anywhere in the world. What we do have, what we have here, what we hold in our hands, we have copies of copies. We have copies of copies. The oldest partial copy we have from a scroll is a little piece of paper. I want you to picture this. It's about two inches by three inches. And it's actually not even one piece. It's a scroll, and this little piece that's about two inches by three inches actually broke, and now that's in two pieces. So it doesn't even have complete sentences. It just has a few words, and then another line with a few Greek words, and then another line, and then there's a break, and then there's a couple more Greek words. We know because people who study things like that know that it came from John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 31 to 38. And so I tried to draw that out. And Trey, one more, Trey. Oh, back up one, please. There. Now, it doesn't actually look like have all those starry points on it or anything, but that's the paragraph that we have the oldest copy of any Scripture from the New Testament. And all that we have, you can kind of imagine in your Bible, we just have like two or three inches out of the middle of that. But that's the paragraph that we have. And that little scrap, that little fragment, dates back to 135 AD, which is more or less 100 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. The oldest copy we have anywhere in the world of a complete New Testament book is dated around 200 A.D., and the oldest complete copy we have of the entire New Testament goes back to 400 A.D. Let me say this again. There is not a single original copy of any part or any piece of the New Testament anywhere in the world. All that we have are copies of copies. Now, generally speaking, and this is nothing, nothing short, nothing less than the sovereignty of God which allows this, the copies and little pieces of fragments that we have scattered throughout time 
that are found all over the world. There are hundreds and hundreds of these little pieces together. They are in remarkably in agreement with each other. Except for Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. These 12 verses create nightmares for people who consider themselves evangelical Christians because what is said in these verses is not in complete agreement with what is being taught throughout the New Testament. Now let me just read these verses for you. Just relax. We're not going to... We're not going to suggest that you go home now this afternoon with a little jar of whiteout and that you cover up that footnote that says these aren't part of the scriptures. No, you better not try that. But remember, if you have a Bible that doesn't have that footnote, then you need to go shopping. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because... They had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, we're going to come back to this in a minute. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Verse 19 says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Whenever there is an ancient manuscript anywhere in the world, now let me just, let, just relax. Whenever there is an ancient manuscript discovered, anywhere in the world that contains these verses, there is always, say it with me, always, now let's just back up, whenever there's an ancient manuscript that contains the Gospel of Mark, whenever there's an ancient manuscript discovered, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these over the hundreds of years, whenever there's an ancient manuscript that is discovered, that has these last verses, 9 through 20, there is always a footnote from a scribe that says something to the effect, verses 9 through 20 are counterfeit. And they were added by someone other than Mark. So there's not, a, there's not a manuscript out there anywhere that says these are supposed to be part of Holy Scripture. It's interesting, and I... I think that's the right word, interesting. That in this, this longer ending to Mark's gospel, verses 9 through 20, there are 18 specific Greek words in this last 
9 through 20, there's 15 specific Greek words that Mark never uses, not even a single time, in the first 16 chapters. Now, there was a time when that didn't make much sense to me, but then it was explained to me, you know, years ago when people used to write letters, do you remember, you know, we don't write letters anymore. There might be somebody. But do you remember years ago, how many of you are old enough to remember when people used to write letters? And you'd actually get letters in the mail. Well, now it's email, and we've got two kids, and they both said, Dad, people don't even use email anymore. That's old. And so I'm still using text messaging, and our kids say, we don't even text anymore. And now they're on to something else. But there was a time, you remember, when your grandma used to write you a letter. You remember that? And you'd get this. Well, people who study those letters... They're no different than you and I. We are in a rut. It's not a rut. It's just the way we live our life. You have certain words. Gary has certain words in his vocabulary. If he's going to write a letter to his mom or his grandma, he will use certain words. When I write a letter, if, I was going to, if my mom or grandma was still alive and I would write a letter, and once in a while you could get a letter and it's signed, Love, Mom. And I read that letter and I'm thinking, Mom didn't write this letter. That, that isn't even the way she talks. Well, that's the situation here at this, these last 10 verses, 11 verses. There are 18 specific Greek words in this last paragraph that Mark never uses, not even one time in the first 16 chapters. So that's one of the reasons we know Mark didn't write this. That doesn't mean, I suppose you can't take that to the bank, that doesn't prove that Mark didn't write these 11 verses. But it's highly unlikely because of the new vocabulary. But then there's a couple of these ideas in these last verses that are not even conservative evangelical theology. For example, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. No, you won't. That doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. Salvation occurs when we believe. Baptism doesn't help with the salvation. I could tell you if we could list the people, which I don't know where the list is, but there are millions and millions and millions of people who have been baptized who are going to spend all of eternity in hell. Baptizing people doesn't save you. Salvation occurs when we believe. Now, I think we should be baptized after we believe as a testimony of our faith, but that has nothing to do with our salvation. And yet here it is in here, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. I know people that are gathered together on Sunday morning in, in, in other buildings here in Sioux Falls, and I won't tell you the name of them, who base part of their theology on this, and that's why they have to baptize people, because this is the only way you're going to get to heaven, is if we baptize, and no, it won't. But then there's this, I don't want to go on and on and on, but 18. This is another one of these. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Hold on a minute. Don't, no, 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 no. I remember a couple of years ago, and it seems like this stuff shows up on the news, and the last couple times I've heard about it, it takes place in Appalachia. It's either Kentucky or Tennessee or the Carolinas where some little group in the middle of nowhere takes this verse out of context and there are 
men and women that crawl into these caves with poisonous snakes and they use this verse, they, no, these snakes aren't going to hurt us. Or they actually drink poison. No, if you drink poison, you're going to die. This verse is not in Holy Scripture. Which leads me to the question I asked 15 minutes ago. Why did they even put this in our Bible? I would just as soon go to the bookstore and buy a Bible that stops at verse 8. But as long as they have that in there, that no reputable Bible accepts these, I'm fine with that. How many copies of the original New Testament do we have? Zero. All that we have are copies of copies. And somewhere along the line, some forgerer counterfeited Mark's gospel and added those last 11 verses. So our title last week, we're trying to have a title for each week. Our title last week was Jesus was crucified. Our title for Mark 16 is, is risen. On Easter Sunday, I'd say, he is risen, and you would say, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah, amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Remember, next week, we're going to do all 16 chapters, and it's, it's going to go fast. We'll close in a word of prayer, and the ushers are going to come and take our offering this morning while the worship team comes and plays for us. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We're thankful that Jesus is in heaven with you at this moment. And we're thankful that you have allowed us, through your sovereignty, to have our hands on a copy of what we believe is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. And so this is not just a story, this crucifixion and burial and resurrection. It's not just a story. We believe it's the truth. And we believe it's true because the Bible tells us it's true. So we ask, Lord, that this would make a difference in our life, that we would not be so worried about the things that aren't part of the Scripture, but, Lord, we would have a desire to add to our heart and add to our life and apply these to the world around us, the truth of what is your truth, in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Lord, for this offering we're about to receive. We thank you for each gift and for each giver, and we ask that you'd help us to continue to be good stewards of all you entrust into our care. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.